Hallelujah. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity that you have provided us by your grace today to gather in this place for the sole and express purpose of glorifying and praising your holy name, of remembering the things that you have done in our life, proclaiming your deeds. We thank you, Lord, that you have purposed for us and as much as you have given us life and breath for this day that we would live and not die, but as your word declares in Psalm 118, to declare the works of the Lord. And among these, we declare that you have ransomed and redeemed us from the miry clay of our sin. When we were dead in our transgressions, you resurrected us by the power of the Holy Spirit, illuminating to us our great need for a Savior. The fact that Christ alone in his death on Calvary could deliver us from the burden of sin. We thank you that in him we have eternal life, the forgiveness of our sin, and now the transformation of our mind by your holy word and the sanctification of all of our being, Lord, incrementally until the day of our glorification where we will be transformed from these lowly bodies to look like Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. These are your great works that we celebrate today. We also see your works in creation providing for us sunshine and the changing of seasons the giving of rain that causes the earth to bloom, to provide for us our every need. All of this is testimony to your sovereign hand, and for it all we give you glory. Now as we turn to your word today, I pray that you would open our heart, Lord, let the windows of revelation shine upon our soul, and if there is any distraction and sin, Lord, that needs to be removed, may the sword of the word cut it free from us today as we strive, Lord Jesus, to be changed by the truth therein contained. I pray that we would not be those who hear and do not do, but we are those, Lord, we would be those that would apply your word following this service as well, so that the world may know that Christ is Lord, not only through our confession, but also through our actions. We pray that you would accomplish this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bible to Psalm chapter 62, which will be our text today. What a great privilege and what an honor it is to open the scriptures. What a great gift and privilege, the recorded words, the infallible truth of God's holy word, his dictates, his promises, his record of revelation, his philosophy of history is to us today. All of these things and more, the Bible is. It establishes for us, and we'll see this in our message today, the very ground and foundation, the very sure footing of a Christian to stand. In a day, no matter how difficult, dark, and no matter how many enemies surround us, we have a sufficient source of safety, security, and assurance in the Word of God, and we find therein a refuge today. Today's message is entitled Fortified Positions, a place of strong fortress or uh, guarding against the enemy, reinforced against the powers that would like to assault it, is the picture and analogy that the psalmist often uses to describe his position spiritually and by extension physically in his life and ministry. This also in Christ is a reality for us as the word declares that the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run to it and are safe. And the New Testament echoes this same thing, this concept when Christ himself declares in Matthew 7 that his word is a sure foundation, it's a rock upon which the wise man builds his house so that the storms of trial and testing will not assail the edifice. And so we think of this today as we open the scriptures and read. 
I'd like to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word with your Bible open to Psalm 62. Follow along with me as I read God's holy word. The title of this morning's psalm is To the Choir Master, According to Jeduthun, a psalm of David, verse 1. For God alone my soul waits in silence. For him comes, from him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah. For God alone, my soul, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Verse 9. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Verse 11, once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Man, more generally mankind, by virtue of his rebellion against God, since original sin became the human experience, the universal human experience, has been interested in moral ambiguity. This tendency shows up in our culture all over the place and to our shame among the confessing church. You don't get too ambiguous morally without disqualifying yourself entirely as the church of Jesus Christ, but there are those who claim to be the church that find in the Old Testament great refuge in these stories, they say, that allow for more gray area, more room to wiggle with the changing winds of culture that would like to be an authority for us on what is right and what is wrong. Increasingly, if you hold to biblical, tried and true, tested, infallible, unchanging morality, you yourself will be declared a bigot, one who is arcane in his ideology, who is uh, intolerant, unloving, uncompassionate, not willing to change with terms that you're familiar with, I'm sure, you know, the direction of history, or what's the common one we hear all the time, the right side of history. What is the, quote, right side of history? Well, it's moral ambiguity, is it not? It implies a relativistic standard whereby in this day and age, things that we once thought were taboo are now to be celebrated. Things that we once thought were uh, great now become, well, you shouldn't say that in public. You shouldn't stand on that ground. That really becomes a real moral taboo in this day and age. Since original sin, man has been interested in this kind of thing. Moral ambiguity, blurry lines, gray areas, 
undefined ethical distinctions, who's really to judge what is right or wrong? Even those who are supposed to be moral authorities that represent Christ and his church or claim to do so have said such things. You know, after all, who am I to judge? Neutral ground is great, is, has, carries with it a great premium. Everyone wants to set up real estate in our culture on new, neutral ground, ground that they can define for themselves. Mankind imagines, if such is the case, that reality includes all these undefined areas, that he himself can take these chaotic elements of his experience and he can put them back together in a way that he sovereignly dictates and thus provide definition and meaning to his experience, his life, his surroundings, his decision, his future, and his society in his own image. What does this sound like to you? It should remind you of the Garden of Eden. It should remind you of the deceptive promise of the serpent himself. Can man predestine the future according to his own will? Well, that was the lie of Satan, but we know rightly when we look at Scripture, there is only one sovereign and he is not us. Neither is he the devil. God himself rules all things from the heavens. The promise, nevertheless, from the evil one is that mankind can be like God. Genesis 3 declares, where he declared erroneously in the garden, knowing that is defining, if you will, good and evil. The word of God, given this circumstance and this predisposition of the human heart and mind, generally speaking, this renders the word of God the most hated body of proposition in all of the world. Men, because it opposes this notion, because the word of God that is opposes the notion that he can determine for himself good and evil, men uh, uh, hate it and oppose it and stand against it. They are naturally in their sin at enmity with the Lord and with his declared truth. And into this situation, the hammer of divine absolutes slaps upside the face with the sobering reality of the drunken sinner and declares to him that God is sovereign. And the sovereignty of God is recorded in detail. And the plan of God and his personal involvement and interaction with his creation is laid out for us in exquisite detail all through Scripture and from cover to cover. Not only the way that he created and set in motion this universe and every atom according to its proper orbit and the function and the constitution and the orientation of planetary bodies and changing seasons and ecosystems and galaxies. And, and the more that we discover as we look deep into space, the more we see the fingerprints of a sovereign God who spoke by a word of his power, everything of this material universe into being and holds it by the power of his almighty hand even to this day. But not only does the sovereign God of scripture control all these things in creation, but he has declared an exclusive way of salvation. Not only this, but he has accomplished this by entering into his creation when God himself took on a human body in Jesus Christ and the God-man walked among us and offered the only sufficient, holy, complete, and perfect and abiding and perpetual sacrifice for our sin. As I pause here and think about the great truths of the scripture, the theological claims that have been proven over and over throughout the course of the pages of the Word of God and in our experience as believers. But they are powerful simply because God spoke them. Ultimately speaking, it may sound like, and it should, if you're a believer in this room, like music to your ears. Praise God, He controls all things. Praise God, 
he entered into creation and became a man. Praise the Lord that he offered me a way of salvation. And praise the Lord that I'm here today because all of that is true. It may sound and ought to like music to your ears. Nevertheless, we don't live in a world that hears those truths the same way as you and I do. This reaction that you have is a precious and rare one indeed. It is only because your soul has been resurrected from spiritual death of sin and satanic allegiance that there remains in you or that there is in you a positive response to the powerful truths of Scripture. In the world outside of the body of Christ, there remains this fortification, this intent and motive to guard and to build themselves on antichrist positions, to fortify themselves feverishly, especially today in our atmosphere of our culture, where at this point in history, the reality of this antithesis, of this animosity is perhaps even more apparent. And so the battle lines are drawn. And the lines that the devil would like to tell us are blurry and the moral ambiguity, no, it becomes crystal clear. There's no such thing as gray areas or as truth. And there is error. There is righteousness and there is wickedness. There is salvation. There is damnation. There are rewards and there are punishments. And this is the nature of things. Now, in the midst of this kind, kind of kind of lines and this air that we breathe of cultural animosity to our position given the nature of man as he rails against the revelation of God. Psalm 62 provides for us a refuge in this climate. The things of God prove unsettling to the world and they proved unsettling to those in David's experience as well. And David, he had his own share of enemies, not only spiritually but physically and in many cases, his physical enemies served as an analogy to lay out for us many of the things that we need to stand on as David did to endure a day of trial and to endure a day of hardship and fighting the good fight of faith. And so Psalm 62 hits us with the perfect prescription if we feel sickened or weary by the culture and the, uh, by the uh, warfare that we find ourselves in spiritually. It prepares us, that is, this psalm with the tools of meditation and worship to fortify our own position as believers in a world of unbelief. David underscores in this psalm the nature and foundation of this fight as he sings these beautiful words. And we find Psalm 62 teaching and instructing and informing us not only of the, way, the nature of things and the way they are, but how to strengthen ourselves so that we can stand in the day of intense pressure, be it persecution be it mockery, be it otherwise. Here's a heading for you. Where you stand and what you stand for will be three things we find in our text today. Where you stand and what you stand for or, and what you uh, stand for will be exclusive, possessive, and consequential. Those are three key words. First of all, exclusive. Where you stand excludes the opposite position. And we will see there are only two places to stand. You are in Christ. You are outside of Christ. You are within the favor of God's covenant as it's described in David's terms in the Old Testament or you are outside. You have broken covenant with the Almighty God and you must answer for your unfaithfulness. Those are the exclusive positions. Secondly, there's a possessive aspect about where you stand. Uh, where you stand indicates what you desire to own, what you gather to yourself, what you identify yourself with and describe and define yourself as. And then finally, there's consequences to both uh, places, our standings, 
It's consequential. It's not inconsequential at all. Where you stand determines your destiny, if you will. Where you stand determines your end. And this is what Psalm 62 teaches us. I want to make the case today. So let us start exploring a little more deeply and specifically this first point today. Where you stand and what you stand for will be exclusive. I was listening to an interview, more uh, just a little live audio caught on tape, where a Christian apologist who understood that the ground of truth and the only place to stand is the revelation of God himself. Otherwise, we would have no certainty, no, uh, no real point of reference to understand and to discern our experience, the world, and the most important questions of life. You know, the big questions like, uh, who is God? And who am I? Or where did I come from? And where am I going? And how should I live? And th those kinds of questions. Well, in this little exchange, this conversational exchange, it occurred at a, pla at a place in Washington, D.C., where um, a whole thousands of atheists had gathered and to demonstrate to the world that they, and by their collective numbers, deserve a voice in our culture, right? So they called it the Reason Rally. What does the Reason Rally, that term, imply to you? Well, that the ground or place of standing, ultimately speaking, is man's autonomous reason. Man thinking all by himself without any external reference point, is a sufficient place for him to establish, you know, a plan for the future, salvation from his problems, certainty in this life, and a place of intellectual pride where he can interact with ideas, with knowing that he can uh, establish himself with a certain amount of influence in a culture that needs him so much. So anyway, this is the context, this reason now, it's Christian apologists, approached a very famous atheist. The apologist was Cy Ten Bruggen, Kate, you might have heard of him, a little bit of an interesting name. The atheist had an interesting name too. His name is Penn Jillette. He's like a uh, showman in, in Las Vegas or something. And they began to, to talk with one another. Penn Jillette said, I, I basically despise your position. I disagree with you. Your position is totalizing, he says. And what he meant to say is that you believe that revelation from God tells you what to think, but how am I supposed to judge that revelation if not by my own reason? And meanwhile, the Christian says, you presume to judge the revelation of God by your reason. What do you judge your reason by? And so you see the conflict there? What is the ultimate authority? Is it man standing alone or is it God speaking to him? The Bible tells us clearly what the ultimate authority is. In Romans 1, what, is this, what do the scriptures say? Even if the word of God was never opened in the palms of the human being, creation itself is worthy testimony that he is not there of his own accord and he exists at the good pleasure of a sovereign over him. Creation itself testifies to the power and the presence, the authority and the creative work of God. And if God had not created this world, you and I would not be able to breathe oxygen. We wouldn't exist in the first place. And that testimony itself, that revelation from God, even in nature, is sufficient to condemn anyone who attends the reason rally thinking that they are the center of the universe. But more than this, God has given us his revelation recorded in Scripture. And this is of great value to us. May we treasure it and not, not only consider it valuable in a kind of sentimental way, but consider it valuable in the absolute foundational bedrock uh, way that the Bible describes itself and that David establishes in this psalm. Listen to David's unashamed allegiance 
as he declares that his position is exclusive of all other certainty claims. He says in verse 1, praise is due, excuse me. He says in verse 1, for God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. Listen, he only is my rock and my salvation. That's, that's the second exclusive term he has employed. In verse 1, I went over it quickly, but notice again the third word in our text today. For God alone, for God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. Verse 2, he only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall be greatly, I shall not be greatly shaken. David is multiplying metaphors to indicate the certainty of his fortified position. For him, God is his rock, his salvation, and his fortress. But not just for him, it's an exclusive position. All who do not share David's conviction will simply be destroyed. And we find that in the course, they will totter, they will prove to have no footing, they will ultimately be judged when we find this in the course of the psalm. David is not just saying, this is true for me. He's saying, this is true, period, and here I stake my claim. God alone, he only. He goes on to explain in this exclusive language in verses 5 through 6, again, as he reiterates the certainty of his position <coughs> and the power of standing in his fortified place when he says in verse 5, for God alone, my soul, O oh my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. Verse 6, he only is my rock and my fortress. My fortress, I shall not earn my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. You see, David demonstrates his unashamed allegiance to absolute and exclusive truth and ground on which he stands. First of all, he claims his, his uh, declaration, his proclamation is that uh, Christ himself, the word of God, the Almighty as he had been revealed to him, is his source and ground for his soul. A very personal, existential, if you will, connection, a relational point of contact, a definite dependency that David expresses in the very first sentence. For God alone, only God, my soul waits in silence. This term, wait in silence, is a beautiful poetic way of saying that I am absolutely confident that all the sufficiency, my heart and my desire and my affections, my worries, my cares, and my concerns need are to be found in the Lord, in God, the unchanging rock of history, the one who has preserved my forebears in the wilderness, who caused water to spring forth from the rock at Meribah, who defeated our enemies time and again, who showed himself powerful in delivering his law, who revealed himself in a cloud of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. This is the one upon whom my soul knows it will find answers to its deepest and most uh, difficult issues and problems. Chief among them, of course, is David's own sin. And we share this experience. The soul caught in its decrepit state, longing to be uh, pulled up as the Holy Spirit reveals to us the position of our alienation and of our depravity. 
the weakness of our flesh and the horrific violation of God's law that we have committed in our sin. This place of desperate crying out waits in silence. That is, it knows for certain that in God he will find his salvation. Especially as David, with faith in the future Messiah, knows that a sufficient way will be made for atonement for his own sin. And we realize in the revealed Christ in history that it has happened once and for all. Yes, even for us. So David's unashamed allegiance recognizes that God himself is the source and ground for his soul. And he does not cry out, uh, hedging his bets with voices to all kinds of other deities. There is no pantheon in David's worship uh, experience. There is one God. And to him, he lifts his soul with certainty, knowing that he will answer with assurance, with help, with salvation. Secondly, under unashamed allegiance, David confesses that God alone is his exclusive source of salvation. He says, from him comes my salvation. This, if you will, becomes the chorus, these first two verses, or the song, as it were. In verses 5 through 6, it's virtually, virtually repeated when he says, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him, he says. For, only is, for he only is my rock and again my salvation. For David, hope and deliverance will come from one place and one place alone. And this is from God. God alone, my soul waits. God alone, he will I will find salvation. And thirdly, David finds in the Lord exclusive source and grounds for security and identity. He declares him to be the Lord that is, his rock, his salvation, his fortress. And in verses 6 and 7, my salvation, my glory, my mighty rock, and my refuge. For David, when he declares that my glory is in the Lord, it's an admonition that there is no worth or value for himself outside of what God alone can describe and ascribe to him. David knows that he has value because he is made in the image of the one true God, God alone. David knows that he has no standing in and of himself upon which to accrue merit that would prove himself worthy, independent of God. He knows that in his Lord, he will find not only hope for his salvation, but meaning for his existence. He knows that where other men and kings ascribe to acquire for themselves lands and influence and power and authority, wealth and riches to serve their own glory, he serves a different course or he serves a different master indeed. Not himself, not the exaltation of him, but instead the exaltation of the Lord. The Lord is his glory. And David's testimony, David's claim, David's boast was much like Paul's. He boasted in the salvation of his God. He said, if I boast in anything or along with Paul, it sounds similar, does it not? Let me boast in Christ the Lord. It wasn't as if these men were without gifts. David himself, no doubt, was probably the greatest uh, you know, a tactician, military tactician there was at that time. He also had great influence. Obviously, he was a powerful leader. He had wisdom at his disposal, and he had men that he could commission. He had the favor of the people many times. There were moments in his career as, as anointed king, even before he took the throne, where throngs, thousands and thousands, were singing his praises in the streets. 
Paul himself had things that he could boast of if he so chose. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, he was an expert. He was perfect in all of the demands, you know, that the ceremonial law laid out as far as judging on a curve is concerned, human to human. But just like Paul recognized, these were nothing without the Lord. Paul says, I count all these things but dung, loss, that I may gain Christ. Why? Because his confession was the same as the author of our psalm today. The only fortified position is not in our achievements, but it's in God alone, who is our rock, our salvation, our fortress, our glory, and our refuge. Now, as we, as we peruse this exclusive position of where David stood, we also see in the body of our text an Antichrist orientation. David declares that the only alternative allegiance to Christ is to be at war with Christ. And this sets out, this kind of sets up the dialectic, the two camps that are in direct opposition to one another. And this is the same today. The Bible describes that, you know, the, the conditions, the warfare conditions, in similar terms, even spiritually speaking, in the New Testament. The weapons of our warfare, it's true, they are not carnal, but that doesn't mean we're not at war. Yes, we fight in a different way than the world does, and we don't wield the sword as the church the way it might be wielded against us. But this is not to say that we, there aren't battle lines drawn. We know this to be true in both Testaments. As we see the testimony of Scripture, David understood this as well. We find this in Psalm 62, 3 and 4. Listen to what he says of the Antichrist position, as it were. He says, How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. The only plan, they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood, they bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. You notice the antinomy here? The believer has, is exalted in a sense. He is secure and assured upon his rock, his fortress, in his God. But there is a certain animosity and jealousy, and the wicked one, the unbeliever, in his unrepentant enmity with the Lord, rails against that individual. He seeks to thrust him down from his high position. This was the case from the very beginning, was it not? Think of Cain and Abel. In a very basic form, you boil down the, an, the uh, antagonism between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, as it were, and you see it embodied in those two brothers. Two brothers that had all the world, you know, to basically lay claim to. Uh, couldn't they find, you know, is the world really too small for just Cain and Abel? Why should there be so much conflict? If you have a difference, why not move away? There's a lot of square footage you can set up camp and just basically agree to disagree. No, you know, Cain would not have it. Why? Because he saw, no doubt in his jealousy, the favor of the Lord uh, 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 poured out upon his brother. And that disparity did not cause him to cry out in repentance, what's wrong? Oh, Lord, change me. But instead, in anger, in his murderous heart, lashed out and killed and murdered his brother in cold blood. This is what happened. Just like Psalm 62 declares, he only they only planned to thrust him down, meaning the godly one, from his high position. Think of Joseph and his brothers. Think of this pattern. It's all through Scripture. Think of Christ himself and the battle lines drawn as we've been reading in Matthew 26. The high priest and the palace of Caiaphas and all his elites 
in both uh, civil and ecclesiastical government conspire to kill him as the day of his passion arrives. One woman is anointing him with oil. Meanwhile, another man is about to betray him for 30 pieces of silver into the hands of the enemy who seek to destroy his life. This is, these are the battle lines that are drawn. This is the Antichrist orientation that we see. You and I shared this opinion. You and I shared this disposition. We're still when we were unbelievers. Thanks be to God that he can change hearts, that he can change us from a God-hater into a God-worshiper, from one who stands in direct opposition to him and his people to one who would lean on him as his fortress, rock, salvation, the one who trusts him alone and exclusively as his mighty rock, his glory, his place of safety and security. As we see this in the scripture, we also find that the position that David holds is directly opposed poetically by these different terms. Whereas David stands on a rock, the unbeliever, the enemy seeks to batter him. Whereas David trusts in him for salvation, the unbeliever or the enemy looks at him as a leaning wall, seeking to exploit any weakness he may find. Whereas David confesses God as a fortress, the uh, unbeliever tries to reduce him to a tottering fence. In all of this, it's the idea is to kick him when, it's, when he's down, to exploit a weakness, and in a sense, to justify himself. Oh, Christian, you're not so great, aren't you? And if they can prove to themselves that you are uh, in the gutter with them and are not set apart by Christ, then that will uh, provide for them that common ground that will make them more assured in their sin. And this is basically the attitude that David dealt with and that we deal with yet today. It is under these conditions that God has called us to reach out with compassion and the gospel. And the way to do this without letting our heart become hardened with a certain hatred and our own kind of animosity responding in kind is simply to remember the sinners that we were before Christ transformed our hearts. What does the Bible say in light of this? To love our enemies, to do good to those who despitefully use us, and to not let ourselves return evil for evil but instead to respond to this hypocrisy and this persecution with the gospel. These days, examples of this abound of the assault on the godly. You know, I can't help but think of political examples because we live in a very chaotic political situation right now and we're fast approaching, you know, what is told to us, what is, you know, billed by many as the most important election of our lifetime. Have you heard that before? Well, if this really is the most important election of our lifetime, and as we live in a nation of 300 plus million people, wouldn't you like something, maybe you share this opinion of mine, wouldn't you like something beyond a binary choice between, you know, a vainglorious pervert and, um, you know, a corruptocrat with 33,000 skeletons in her closet? Just a little editorial comment there. So under these conditions, I find myself thinking, what would a political hero look like in our day and age? What would it look like to stand for righteousness? in this what seems like a downward spiral of increasing corruption in the social environment that we share as a nation under our governmental leaders. And there's maybe one example I'll put out to you of a man that I, I uh, think is noble in some of his godly efforts, Judge Roy Moore. Maybe you've heard of his name in Alabama, Chief Justice. And this man has been assaulted many different ways, legally speaking, and at many different times. He's been removed from the bench, I think, a second time and he'll get voted back in, and he'll probably run for office again. 
But it's one example where battle lines seem to be drawn in our culture, where a man who feels a sense of calling to bring this place of assurance where God alone defines what is salvation rock and, and a fortress and to bring it into the political sphere, even the civil sphere, and to assert the lordship of Jesus Christ where others will vie for that position. And he finds there a position of antinomy and he is opposed at every turn and he receives you know, the equivalent of legal persecution in so doing. This is one example today where the battle lines are drawn. And it's an example that I think about and, uh, and, and uh, it, it, it's, it's one that should inspire us to pray for godly leaders. And that might be kind of a big out there example, but there's other things that are closer to home. And I'm sure you've experienced them firsthand. There are those who you may be gun shy about having a conversation with in around the mealtime, you know, when it comes to the holidays, simply because you know as soon as you tell them or indicate by your conversation topics where you stand, that they will have an immediate reaction to it, defensive at least, maybe visceral response, and they, they will uh, begin to pull back. And instead of agreeing with you or hearing you out, their attitude and their demeanor towards you will be one more like battering <laughs> against the truth that you have and opposing it in the best way that they know how. This is because mankind needs a savior. From the individual uh, situation where we see these examples, even to our corporate experience, this plays out. Second major point this morning, possessive. Where you stand and what you stand for will be possessive. It means uh, this meaning that you will there will be an identity and a personal ownership aspect to where you stand in life that is inescapable. Uh, what will you own? What will you pull to yourself? What will you seek to possess? Will you seek to make your passions? We seek to make our pa uh, passions, our desires, the things our affections long for, our closest companion. We pull them closer to us. In the way that we are wired, there's a very personal and proprietary sense about our being. And this is true in David's experience. And notice the possessive pronouns that he uses, or particularly my. In verse 1, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Later he says in verse 5, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my fortress, uh, my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be shaken. Again, verse 7, On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. The New Testament illustrates the principle that David is exalting in this song by saying, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. David is describing for us in these terms his treasure, the things that he loves, the things that he most wants to call his own, that he takes possession of, holds them most tightly. He is my salvation. I will never let him go. He is my rock. Upon him I am fixed. He is my fortress. Behind this wall I take my stand. He is my hope. I will not look to another. He is my refuge. There is safety in no one else. He is my glory. I refuse to find identity in any other source. David's treasure showed where his heart was. He, after all, a man after God's own heart, 
took possession and had very personal relationship. And there was a proprietary sense about his standing when it came to the things of the Lord. This is incredible because it moves from, though the Psalm 62 is theologically rich indeed, it moves these spiritual principles out of the realm of abstract thought and theology into the personal and a very close connection that David had relationally with the Lord. We see this throughout the course of the psalm, but again, we also see the antithesis. We see the Antichrist orientation as well. Notice in verse 10, most specifically, where David exhorts, he says, Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Remember where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. David is saying, whatever condition you find yourself in, even uh, more, you know, being comfortable, wealthy, and well-off, do not let that be tempting to set your heart upon. And more than this, don't place your hope and your, uh, and your comfort in things of this world which would move you to extort for your own gain and to even rob others to secure your position. And earlier in the text, he has also said in verse 4 that those who plan to thrust him down from his high position, they take pleasure in falsehood. They orient their plans deceptively to secure for themselves more personal gain. They negotiate and manipulate and they use loopholes and opportunities to gain for themselves that which makes them feel secure. If Think about it. If your rock and salvation and fortress, if your refuge and your glory and your place of surety and well-standing salvation depends on material things, what will you naturally be wired to do? To gather as many material things, things of this world, around yourself. Because where you stand is very possessive. And so we find that those who don't have Christ as their possession become thieves. Why are they thieves? Ultimately, because they are materialists. If there's nothing beyond their experience to give them salvation, then they must frantically gather for themselves as much security as possible. Believe it or not, this truth underscores Marxism itself. What is Marxism? It's that political ideology that religiously presupposes something. It religiously presupposes that there is no God and that there is no reality outside of stuff, outside of our experience, outside of the material world. Therefore, justice is, I guess everybody has to have equal stuff, and that will bring righteousness in the world. This isn't the biblical worldview, not even close. In fact, such a thing falls short of God's law and violates it in stealing from one who rightfully earned his wages and giving it to another. Instead, what is true riches is beyond the material in the Christian worldview and where we stand as believers. A man can be poor, earthly speak, you know, by earthly riches and rich in his kingdom of God possessions. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? A great uh, mansion and personal, you know, uh, you know, uh, great, well-diversified investment program and 401k and this and that and, uh, you know, uh, uh, cor corporate acquisition of all this wealth. No, great it, for them is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is an inheritance of a spiritual kind. And so we see there are two positions here. There are those who can frantically extort 
and seek for every opportunity to assure themselves in this life of that which will make them feel secure. And there are those who actually have the confidence to lose this life knowing that their reward is in heaven. There are those who stand with David who know that they can have everything, materially speaking, stripped from them and still enter into great reward in glory. And this is the difference between the way the world thinks and the way our mind is transformed by the renewing of God's word. Final point this morning in Psalm 62, consequences. Where you stand and what you stand for will be consequential. Where you stand will determine where you end up, your future, your destiny. This is underscored in two separate ways. The first employs an analogy of balance in the text in verse 30. Those of low estate are but a breath, but those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. In real time, this concept is illustrated in the book of Daniel. You can turn there briefly with me. I'm sure you're familiar with the story. If you remember, Daniel stuck out like a sore thumb. Maybe you could say a healed thumb, I guess, in a nation of sore thumbs. David was a lone believer with a few friends, a few select remnant, very small indeed, in this pagan environment. By God's grace and sovereignty, he was promoted to positions of influence, and these showed up in the most interesting times. One of these interesting times took place in Daniel 5, Belshazzar, the king at the time, verse 24, we read, then in his presence, so you'll remember the scene, drunken revelry, this, uh, uh, all this gross immorality is going on, the king of the time, the pagan, is celebrating with all of uh, in drinking from the temple vessels and so on, desecrating them. It says, and then the feast is interrupted by writing on the wall. Then from his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mine, mine, tekel, parson. This is the interpretation of the manner. Mine, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. In real time, in this kingdom, the events that took place illustrated to a T, Psalm 62, 9. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. It was a delusion. It was a mad farce. It was a lie. It was self-deception for Belshazzar to believe that because of his prominence, his power, his wealth, and his position, that he could desecrate the symbols of God's glory and holiness in the temple vessels without consequence. He was weighed in the balances that very day, and he went up. That is to say, imagine balances, okay? You have the standard on one side, and then yourself and the other, do you measure up? Or an object in the other, does it measure up? <clears throat> if it measures up, it goes down. If it doesn't measure up, it goes up. You are weighed in the balances, and in Psalm 62, 9 language, you have gone up, Belshazzar. None of your influence, none of your power, none of your wealth, none of your position, 
not anything of your estate has granted you a feather's weight to drop any closer to the standard of God's righteousness. And tonight, your kingdom and your life are required of you. Where you stand determines where you will end up. And he learned this, did he not? We see this demonstrated throughout the entire book of the Bible, where those who rule and reign with apparent you know, autonomy and all this pride for a time, there comes a time inevitably in the course of every king or pauper where he must answer to the Lord and his judgment. What will he plead when he stands in that balance one day? What will you plead? The only way that that balance will go down is if you plead the blood of Christ. If you were at Stanley's funeral yesterday, you know that in his hand was a verse that we read this morning from the book of Jude. And his plan, the symbol, uh, the, the imagery there, the idea was that this is all he had to present before the Lord when he was to give his own accounting. Those verses were now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You hear the similarities, don't you? You hear the exclusiveness. You hear the possession, don't you? The only God, our Savior, our Lord, He is the one who is able to keep us from stumbling. He is the one who is able to present us blameless. So when we are placed on the balances, they actually meet the standard. This word breath is used twice in verse 9. Those of low estate are but a breath. In other words, rich and poor answer to the same standard. They stand before the same judge. Later it says they're uh, together lighter than a breath. In the Hebrew, this is Hebel, uh, Hebel. I can't really, I don't really know exactly how to pronounce it, but the idea is uh, a nothing, a delusion. The words that are associated with its meaning show up in Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, it's the same word. A breath, a delusion, an emptiness, a fleeting sense of futility, fraudulent, a vape, just a vapor, absolutely futile, nothing, useless, worthless. And all of these ideas are connoted in this word breath. And it poetically and dramatically and graphically describes the emptiness of any place to stand other than in the Lord. Finally, this morning, the, other conse the consequences to the positive provide hope for David and hope for us if you are in Christ today. And we read of these in verses 11 and 12. It says, once God has spoken twice, have I heard this? That power belongs to God. Not only does David find all his salvation and his fortress, his security and assurance in God, but he also knows that power belongs to him, judgment, authority belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord, belongs something else, verse 12. Steadfast love, judgment, and mercy are within the sovereign command of the Lord. He says, for you will render to a man according to his work. This is a great hope indeed, especially when we understand this idea of hesed or steadfast love in the text. This again is the gospel in the Psalms, the covenant-keeping loyalty of the God of the covenant. The covenant had the one that has declared David righteous by faith in the future, a giving of the Messiah for his own sins that was typified in the sacrifices of that day. This kind of love David understood would justify him. 
And this kind of love he knew that the Lord alone possessed. And if he stood within the covenant of the Lord in his favor, he could trust that though he, like Belshazzar, and everyone who went before will answer to the Lord, he will receive the smile of favor in communion and not the mark of judgment because of God's great salvation. Where is justice and mercy reconciled? These two immutable characteristics, these virtues, these perfections of God Almighty, where are judgment and mercy reconciled? You know the answer, Jesus Christ. These, that is power and judgment, steadfast love and mercy, justice and the love of God, they are the exclusive property of God alone, and they are reconciled only in Jesus Christ, who is the wrath-absorbing Savior of all enemies of God who repent of their sin and place faith in the power of his shed blood to forgive their defiance against, O holy God, and to purchase their eternal life so that they can truly confess with the psalmist, as I pray you can this morning, God alone, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not. Be greatly shaken. Let us close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we thank you for the surety that we have in your holy word. We thank you that for the assurance of our salvation by the seal of the Holy Spirit upon our hearts. We thank you for the revelation of Jesus Christ, born in time of a virgin, who went to the cross, who took the shame and the punishment, the wrath our sin deserved, who was resurrected, who defeated in so doing death, sin, the grave, who ascended and now rules and reigns at the right hand of the Father over all. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, that we find ourselves in you today for those that confess you as Savior. If there are any here who do not have that assurance, who do not know where they stand, I pray that your word would convict their hearts unto repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and that they would ask one, uh, someone that they know, Lord Jesus, before leaving this place, what must I do to be saved? that they would find in you, Lord Jesus, sufficient, yet your sufficient blood, that your broken body will completely, utterly wash away their sins and grant them eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray.